This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? Vermont is one of the whitest states in the country. For black, indigenous, and people of color, working in the state can be extremely difficult, particularly when there is little attention paid to addressing racism and white racial solidarity in the workplace. Goddard College has recently embarked upon a community animation and oral history project to address these issues. Join us as we speak to the project co-director, Dr. H. Sharif Williams, and listen to oral histories that have been collected as part of this project, telling our stories, conversations on history, place, and race. Come on, talk to me, you can see what's going on. The project came about through conversations that I was having with colleagues about the state of racial equity and racial justice at Goddard College as well as in Vermont, and the need to both give space for the voices of black, indigenous, and people of color, faculty and staff, to tell their stories, to recognize each other and the contributions that we have made to the community, and as well to give space for folks who are racialized as white to recognize and confront uh, the very real dynamics of racism, of discrimination, of prejudice, the experience of working and living in systems of racial violence, racial oppression, structural violence. And so my colleague, uh, Dr. Gail Jackson from the 
MFA in interdisciplinary arts, agreed to come on board as a, a project co-director with me and to be the oral historian to work with our faculty and staff colleagues to document their experiences, both before they got to Goddard as well as while they were at Goddard. So that's been the first part of the project. The next parts of the project include engaging the community in these stories and inviting students to work with faculty, staff, and alums on racial equity projects at the college inspired by what they have experienced in reviewing the oral histories. And we hope that this will not only change and transform Goddard College into a, um, a racial equity organization with racial justice at the forefront, but also can be a model for our neighbors who are committed to racial equity and racial justice as well. And we're really, really excited to get the support of the Goddard College Faculty Council and also the Vermont Humanities Council in this effort. Can you talk about the complexity of this issue? I'm a white, a Jewish white male. Um, I grew up in New York City in racially mixed neighborhoods and schools. And yet as a white person, I still have revelations and insights into how, how little I know of the experience of people of color in this country and that I continually get fooled or lulled into thinking that things are actually getting better only to get shocked by how how things don't seem to be getting better in some ways seem to be getting worse. Sure, yes. Yeah. So I, I oftentimes joke uh, when people talk about the, the diversity of a particular place. I said, well, the slave plantation was ethnically diverse, but that didn't stop it from being racially violent. So we can have spaces in which people of various ethnicities exist or live in the same space or work in the same space, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the structures, the systems of power and privilege are just and equitable. And there's a, uh, there's a reason why people who are racialized as white oftentimes do not have a sense of the racial dynamics that are going on at the time. That is, that is actually a conditioned reality. It's, it's a designed reality um, because it's necessary for people racialized as white to exist within a strategic naivete or a strategic ignorance about the racial violence that is happening all around them, some of which they are either tacitly um, perpetuating or, or in which they're participating because that's what systems need in order to exist. They need for people to not necessarily be the intentional racist. They need them to be a, a, a passive racist in the sense of not knowing, not recognizing, but still participating and, per and perpetuating in subtle and not so subtle ways. Um, the educational system sets that up. We are, we learned we, uh, um, white supremacy. We learned how to invest in whiteness and in the mythologies of whiteness 
from a very early age. All of us have. And so I have had to and continue to have to unlearn the white supremacy, the white cultural mythology that I was conditioned to learn in school. But that's more of the exception than the rule. Most of us don't even recognize that we have been caught up in what could be considered the racial matrix, going back to that sci-fi movie, uh, the racial matrix in which we have been lulled into believing some very, very um, pernicious myths about whiteness, about race, about the United States. Um, we don't we don't really learn about the United States as an empire as a result of settler colonialism. We don't really learn about the impact that that has had on indigenous people. I'm from New York as well. We celebrate Christopher Columbus Day and we celebrate Thanksgiving as a part of these national um, mythologies that we learn as children. I grew up going to a school where my Irish Catholic sixth grade teacher was having us, a class of mostly black and brown children, sing over the hills and through the woods to grandmother's house we go. And this is in Brooklyn, New York. Um, and the horse knows the way to carry the sleigh. Well, we didn't, we traveled on trains and buses and cars. We didn't travel in a sleigh to get to grandmother's house. And, and, and my grandmother's house, both of my grandmothers lived in apartments, not, not homes. And so, but we were taught to imbibe and digest Americana in this very, very twisted uh, kind of, was it, loving, compassionate way that disrupted our cultural and social makeup in various ways. And people who racialize as white experience that as well. The cost of living in the United States as a racially, as a um, person racialized as white, is to give up your ethnic identity. So you're no longer Irish and Italian or Celtic or uh, um, Syrian or what have you, but you, you are white, this very homogenized, bland, American cheese version of culture. And in giving that up, you then get access to the privileges of whiteness. You, you then get access to uh, being in a higher rung in the racial hierarchy, the racial ladder of this country. That's a really fascinating thing that you just brought up. That um, What occurred to me is that I think a lot of white people probably think that, well, why don't, why don't people of color just give up their, their persistent sense of separate identity and be like the rest of us? Yeah, and uh, that rest of us, again, it's always a location, um, a centering of the racialized white person as the norm, as the standard, as the, as the we, the I, the us, and everybody else is the them. And I would say that for someone who is black, it is never the case that we can be fully assimilated into the white normative culture, that we are always marked because of skin color, we are always marked as the other. So no matter what we do in giving up, and there are, there are many people of African descent who have attempted to give up their, their culture and give up their, um, their ethnic identity and become 
as close to white as possible, but the system does not allow us to do that. The very early miscegenation laws that were passed in the United States or in the colonies were, were passed so that there could always be a distinction between what is white and what is non-white. And there are various ways throughout the history of this country that the system has set up a way to distinguish. So that idea of um, assimilating into the, the culture is an impossibility. In addition to that, it is also unhealthy. It, is also, it, it also has tangible, material, negative consequences on the physical, spiritual, psychic, and emotional health of the person who is trying to, uh, to assimilate into it. That whiteness has been harmful to the health of people racialized as white. You look at the statistics on mass shootings in the United States, and the majority of those folks are racialized as white. There's a, there's a cultural reason for that, and part of that is, and a social reason for that. And part of that is the negative consequences of being racialized as white, the negative consequences of giving up one's ethnic identity and culture to assimilate into, again, the American cheese-ness of, of whiteness. Like, if, if you think about it, would you rather have Gouda or Munster or Swiss or Griezer? Would you rather have that or would you rather have American cheese? Anybody who has a, who has a taste, who has taste buds and understands complexity and savoriness and diversity of the palate would prefer anything other than American cheese. But that's what the United States offers in terms of a racial cultural landscape. That's a wonderful insight. I, I love that analogy. I think it's very apt. It also eliminates the possibility of having a greater variety of experience in our lives, within the context of our lives. And I, I agree with you. I think many white Americans have lost any sense of themselves as as a meaningful individual in our culture. And there are many people who, who look at American culture and go, what culture? America doesn't have a culture. Well, it has, it has a culture. Uh, what's interesting is that, is that what it does is it has absorbed the cultures of various groups who, who have been, who've come to the United States or come to this country either involuntarily or voluntarily, and then it places a veneer over it to, to dull it down, to make it more digestible for a greater number of folks. That's, again, that American cheese thing. It's, it's, it tries to be as acceptable and digestible and non-offensive in many ways culturally so that the greatest number of people can consume it with very little work involved in their, in their cultural palate. But the harm that is done to people racialized as white is enormous. It has meant that people have become addicted to things. It means that people have become invested in consumerism. It has meant that people are invested in faux patriotism, and the current administration is a great example of that. It means that um, there is a violence and a tribalness that has developed as a result of this loss of the nourishment that 
culture provides, that ethnic culture provides. And so going back to your other question, well, why would someone want to assimilate into that unless they themselves were already coming from a very, very wounded place? I believe it was Malcolm X who said, why would you want to integrate into a burning house? This is all very interesting. My parents were children of immigrants, European immigrants, Eastern European immigrants. And so the America that you speak of to them was designed, according to how at least how I was raised, the message in my upbringing, to be just that. It was the place that you could go and leave a very, very wounded, frightening situation and be saved, you know, with all the glory, including the consumerism and the safety and the freedom and all of this and the promise of the United States. And I do think that it's gone awry, and I do think the damage that it's done um, to people of color and also to white people, because I even think of my own loss of my own culture in that, you know, my loss of my Russian language, Yiddish language, uh, the loss of uh, traditions of my family to become Americanized, along with um, what the what the culture has done to victimize people who are deemed as others. Yes, and I would say for um, the black indigenous and people of color who've been involved, it is also about us being able to create space to recognize and acknowledge each other. So part of the challenge of being black indigenous, a person of color working in a um, predominantly white institution is that our existence is always tentative, it is always um, contested, it is always suspect, and so we live in a reality in which we are forever waiting to exhale, and we are struggling to find space on which there is a solid ground upon which we can sit or stand or lay our head. And what Gail and I have attempted to do in this work is really create space for black, indigenous, and people of color to create home for a moment, what's called a temporary autonomous zone, or what what the Maroons created for themselves when they liberated themselves from from bondage uh, in in this hemisphere. It's a space where we can be with each other, be in community with each other, um, be in solidarity with each other, and really recognize the the beauty and the complexity that exists within us as individuals, as well as within us as uh, as colleagues. And is there, do you feel that there's space for for white people in there at this point as yet? Or what is, what is the dynamic in, in bridging that spatial equation with everyone? Well, I think that because of the existence of white supremacy, which means the system and the, and the ideology that is always creating space for whiteness and always creating space for people racialize as, as white as long as they adhere to the rules of whiteness, that the question is a priority. 
I mean, w- what I just did a moment ago in terms of talking about black indigenous people of color was actually to resist my natural inclination as someone who has imbibed whiteness and white supremacy for as long as I've been in educational systems um, was, to, was to not just talk about whiteness and people racialized as white because there will always be space created for them because that's the nature of the game in this society. So the question uh, slightly to say, okay, so what space are we intentionally creating for people who are racialized as white. And I would say that the intentional space we're creating for them is first one of deep listening, deep listening to the stories and experiences of black, indigenous, and other people of color. And then to reflect on their own proximity and participation and the racialized structural violence. And then to begin to ask themselves, what are the costs to their proximity and participation in racialized structural violence? What are the costs to themselves and what are the costs to those around them? And to make a choice, to choose to either be intentional in their perpetuation and participation in the racialized structural violence or to be intentional about resisting and challenging and transgressing um, to become what others have called race traitors, traitors to their racialization and whiteness, traitors to white normative culture, traitors to white supremacy. And the work in alliance and in solidarity with black, indigenous, and other people of color to end the system. That's what's on the table for people who are racialized as white. From what you're saying and the language that you're using, it strikes me that it's very difficult for white people to understand what it feels like to be on the receiving end of the kind of racialized violence that you're alluding to and that and that white people probably would respond by saying well why why use all of this this warlike fighting against and using terms like race traitor rather than using terms like creating change or something that sounds a little more gentle more palatable to a a dominant white culture I would ask them to look at the sense of privilege and entitlement in the quest for something that is more palatable and digestible for them. Like what gives them the belief, the assumption that someone must make something more palatable and digestible for them. I would ask them to look at the privilege and entitlement at believing that They need to be, they always need to feel a sense of comfort in what is happening and a sense of comfort in change. To ask them to to look at where that comes from, where that need for digestible, palatable comfort comes. And I would suggest to them that it comes in their, um, their socialization 
in white supremacy. And they're being attuned to comfort and digestible and, and palatable. I would also say that it's interesting to talk about warlike language, particularly in the postmodern discourses, people will, will talk about language in a material sense. But I'm coming from, uh, I'm coming as a descendant of people who actually had a, a material physical war perpetuated on them called the transatlantic slave trade. I'm coming from a people whose, whose lands in Africa were taken, were conquered, were colonized, exploited. And even after, quote-unquote, independence happened, the financial resources, the natural resources of Africa have still been exploited. And they've been exploited through the World Bank, through the International Monetary Fund, through transnational corporations. I'm talking about the violence that has been done in places like the Niger Delta, through the participation of corporations like Shell Oil. I'm talking about people who in this country have had a genocide practice against them, the indigenous people. So when we, as we say in the queer community, when people are clutching their pearls at words that they find too harsh but don't give a damn about the actual violence, physical violence, the maiming, talk about King Leopold and what the, uh, what the Belgian people did, in Central Africa, in the Congo, and what have you, the, the cutting off of people's arms and limbs as a form of social control, the, the spreading of disease intentionally of indigenous people here in this country, the, the history of horrific, horrendous violence and destruction, the raping of women and children and men, yes, the raping of men. We talk about that long-standing history. If, if someone is clutching their pearls at the term race trader, then I really, really ask them to invite in their full humanity and looking at the full history of violence that has happened, racialized violence that has happened by people racialized as white. I'm so grateful that you're presenting all of this so articulately. As someone who has been thoroughly educated in, in all of this history myself, I feel like I benefit so much by, by having it pounded back into my head over and over again because it's so easy as a white person immersed in this very safe, dominant white culture to forget those stories and to think that maybe it's time for, for all of us to move on. And yet there are many people people of, of color and transgender and queer people who, who don't experience that kind of safety, that, that kind of space, they're, they're always living under fire, under threat. And, and I would say that the vast majority of people racialized as white in this country are also constantly living under threat. And, it, and it's, a, it's a internalized threat. It's a, it's a psychic um, paranoia, racial paranoia. It's a, it's a um, uh, suspicion. It's an uneasiness. The reason why we can't legislate and change the gun laws in this country is because of the psychic violence 
that people racialize as white experience about retribution and about revenge. There's, a, there's an unconscious acknowledgement of the harm that has been done and continues to do. You know, Jane Elliott does this experiment with groups of people racialized as white, where she asks them, how many of you would allow yourself to be treated like black people are treated in this country? If we give you a million dollars or something like that, how many of you would accept being treated the way black people in this country are treated? And very few, if, if any folks, actually raise their hand and say that they would. And she says it's because you know even on an unconscious, even if it's on an unconscious level, you know what is happening. Again, that's why it's a strategic naivete and a strategic innocence. So there's a way in which people racialize as white know what is happening and they disassociate with it so that they can continue to think of themselves as good people, as well-meaning people, but that they know. And so there is a there is a low grade fever of racial paranoia that most people racialized as white experience on a day to day basis. And it's why we don't have common sense gun laws in this country, because the sense is common among people racialized as white that if if they let their guard down, there's a potential for these black, indigenous and other people of color to seek revenge and retribution, to balance the, the racial historical scales. And there's a, deep, there's a deep fear that that can happen at any moment. Right? It's why we have policing in, in the United States in the way that we do, because there's a need to keep suppressed the rage that exists in black, indigenous, and other people of color. It's why we have the kind of drug policies that we have and the commercial practices that we have to keep black, indigenous, and people of color focusing their rage and their tension on each other because if they don't, in the white imaginary, they are going to call in the receipts of history. They're going to seek the balancing of the books, that promissory note that Martin Luther King talked about will be torn up and people will seek their own quote-unquote Second Amendment remedies in the language of, of today. So I don't believe that people racialized as white actually exist in a bubble of safety. I believe that they exist in a bubble of strategic naivete and ignorance that allows them to, to keep going another day, and that that bubble is, is suffocating their spirit and their souls. That bubble is actually keeping them from growing beyond it. That bubble is, is keeping them locked into a cultural and social prison of historical intergenerational racial violence. Well, I couldn't agree with you more as I observe the horrors of what's going on in this country these days that has emerged from, from the more recent subterranean white-dominant culture to, to this overt posturing and and overt violence that our current administration and, and people who are supporting it are just shamelessly 
spewing. Yes, what the Trump administration, what the Trump campaign and then the Trump administration has done is that it has given voice to a reality that people racialized as white who are liberals have attempted to ignore and brush aside. But that is, a, and they've done that because it rubs up against the mythology that they, that they want to perpetuate about the history of this country, the, the nature of progressiveness that we are, that we are, that the long arc of history leans toward justice, that like these beliefs in our evolved selves. But the Trump campaign and the Trump administration, what it has done is that it has allowed us to look at ourselves in, in, in really, really important ways. It has held up a mirror to folks and has served as a light switch, uh, turning on the, the light. And like if you, anyone who's lived in an urban environment where you have, you know, you may have roaches or you may have some mice, what have you, and you walk into the room, in a dark room, and you say, okay, everything is fine, and you turn on the light, and then you see roaches running around, and you see a, a mouse running around. It's like the Trump administration and the Trump campaign has turned on that light. And so now we're seeing that our house is in disarray, that we have dishes in the sink, that we have vermin and we have roaches and we have, we have all these things that were there all the time. These things were there during the Obama administration. Right? The Black Lives Matter movement actually started during the Obama administration. So the kind of racial utopia that many folks fooled themselves into believing was the nature of the Obama years and the, and the Obama administration. Actually, that was the, the lights being turned off. People racialized as, as white voted for Obama in, in the promise, in his hope thing, the promise of racial utopia that never existed. And so the Trump administration turns on the light, and now we're seeing that our house is in disarray. And we're being challenged to answer the question, ask and answer the question, how committed are we to living this way? Are we really willing to live in this self? Are we really willing to ignore the stench much longer? Are we now perhaps ready to actually start cleaning up our house? Something that we have never done in this country. What we've done is put air pressure in the wall so that we have air pressure mixing with the stench. But we've never actually addressed the rotting meat and flesh in the corner. So Haruka T, I think this is part of the reason that I find the project very important because for me as a as a white person, I have worked um, in my life in plenty of predominantly white institutions that were, you know, lived under veils of progressivism and there's a part of that that's very appealing because it allows me to navigate with quote-unquote, like-minded people and to feel like, you know, what you say, oh, I'm a good person or to try to fight the good fight. And then I, I feel like it's a, I live this sort of double life in a way because the other part of me is going, uh, you know, this is not, this is even worse than just a plain old institution that doesn't claim to be, you know, progressive, if that makes sense. Especially in the area of education, which is where I've been, in schools that have lived under 
social justice missions, as I was mentioning before, or missions and, and visions that look to equity. And I, I'm, not, I'm just not trying to dismiss this as purely evil. My concern is that it becomes a distraction to the stench that you're talking about, because um, it's just, it feels like a veil or a mask. And I, I, it it's, it's, it's makes me disheartening to think about what to do about it. And it brings me to look at projects such as the one that um, hopefully we'll be listening to here in a bit to complement what you had to say, um, to how we take a, a, a progressive white liberal institution that, you know, has a lot of claims around its quest, and I'm not denying the intention there, but it falls short, and what do we do about that? And, and with the power of projects such as this. And the power of story. Yeah, uh, I am a artist that uses story in much of my work. I'm a playwright, a stage director, filmmaker, and performance artist. And so the power of story is one that, that I'm connected to in various ways. I would say that what story does is that it is able to go beyond the egocentric, rational mind and speak to the unconscious and subconscious, to speak to the meta-rational aspect of our brains and of our minds, and allows us to create meaning that moves beyond just the numbers and that kind of logical, rational, calculating cognitive process. And, and that could be used for nefarious purposes. That could be used for all kinds of different purposes. Again, you look at the, the Nazi machine and, and the use of propaganda and story. You know, the film industry boomed amongst the Nazis because they understood the power of imagery and story. It's primordial. It takes us back to our ancient roots of symbolism and story and narrative. And so we chose story, one, because both Gail and I are artists, and two, because we understand the nature and power of story and the storytelling process. So there is something about somebody telling their story that affects them, and it affects the listener. So creating these storytelling sessions in which people sat down with us to tell us about their lives and their lived experience. We understood that that would be a moment of potential transformation just in and of itself. And then the, the working with the storyteller to shape and, and edit, revise, and hone down the session into a 10 or 15 minute clip was another moment of transformation because now the storyteller gets to reflect on the story in a way that's a bit more objective is outside of the self, outside of the storytelling, uh, the initial storytelling moment, but that they're now engaged with this object in a, in a different way. And then the next moment of sharing the 10 to 15 minute clips with folks, and that becomes another moment of potential transformation, of bearing witness to another story. Like, all of these things are deeply connected to our humanity. 
So we have five stories. Is there one that you would particularly like to begin with? I don't, actually. You, you can choose. Okay. I thought we could start with Diana Waters. Why don't you introduce it? Sure. So Dr. Diana Waters is a friend and colleague from the Philadelphia area, educator, and my colleague in the undergraduate programs. All of these are from our undergraduate programs faculty. Okay. So this is Diana Waters. So I am an East Coast gal, Philly-born, Philly-bred. I'm coming from an urban center. People of color, even those of European descent, I'm connected to people that don't claim whiteness or claim unwhiteness. I come from an urban center. I come from a place where people are in physical, ideological, and social and emotional close proximity. So you can't just say any old thing and do any old thing you want to. And it's not always about like your need and my need. And, you know, there's a constant grappling and a constant negotiation, which is a little bit different from what I find here. Where I come from is very integral to uh, what I do. Philadelphia does have a history of diversity in the black community. Lots of freed folks who were educated. The Allegheny chain begins in Philadelphia. So there are a lot of Africans that came to the Americas that had escaped enslavement and lived with the indigenous peoples. So a lot of what goes on in Philadelphia in education is, is a result of that. I often wondered as a young person why I was able to be academically successful, where some of my peers who I know are smarter than I am ended up not finishing high school. You know, one story I have is I was the operations director at a home health organization, and I ran into a friend of mine, a buddy of mine that I had gone through kindergarten through ninth grade, and then we lost touch. She used to help me with my math, and I would help her with English. And she was one of the entry-level healthcare workers, and I was her boss. That just bothered me so much. How does that happen? I had the cultural capital. I had the things that spend well in dominant culture. I have command of standard English. I can speak very nasally and I can speak very gently and very quietly when I need to. I can refrain from doing anything that appears as spectacle. Whereas she is from a background where, you know, if you're mad, you're loud, you're mad, you know, whatever. And it didn't spend well, and so she didn't get the same kinds of opportunities. She wasn't allowed into the same kinds of arenas that I was, which made me think that I was smart, 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 and so much better. So as I uh, begin to get further into my profession as an educator and just get some wisdom of life, I realized, whoa, there's something a little bit wrong here. There's something, there's something else going on here that I later learned the name, which is structural inequality and the impact that it has on different ones of us. So my mother was very intellectual, but also, but also uh, uh, creative. She was the country girl, but in the family, she was the one that kind of directed like the social skills. My mother actually spent most of her young life on the side of a mountain in Roanoke, Virginia. She came to Philadelphia and they knew that in those days, education was, I guess, the way out. As a young person, I actually learned things like when white folks uh, would act in, way, in, in oppressive ways. I got these messages that it was some illness on their part and it was our job to help them. 
So I didn't grow up with that kind of internalized racism and that kind of, you know, that, that didn't really you know affect my esteem. So I pretty much grew up with an analysis because, you know, my father started looking at the economic ways of social justice. And so he was a, you know, he was a black man with a white collar job, a, a good government job, but it was in fact quite the communist. And so some of the messages that I got about the way things worked I've always had an analysis of myself in relation to the rest of the world. We had to watch out for the them, but if they acted right, they could come inside. But we had to be aware of when we were like outside, outside of the clan, the physical and ideological spaces of what was of what was us. But that our job in life was to make sure that the us that weren't as fortunate as we were got the assistance and raised to the level of, of, of access and that we were deserving of more a bigger piece of the pie, and that was our job. But that it was also our job to help train them, you know, to stay out of their way, to make sure that we didn't become their victims, but also to train them for better behavior. So whiteness and white superiority and white supremacy, or whatever you want to call it, is not a backdrop. That's not a back, that was not a backdrop for my life. I knew that it existed, and I knew that it was something wrong with it. So I didn't have to learn that that was not the norm. We knew that shit wasn't normal. I grew up thinking that we were poorer than some of our counterparts because, you know, I have six siblings and my parents chose a big house with land. We grew food in our yard and people laughed at us. The class-race relationship was such that if you were black, chances are you were working class. But there are folks that were, are black and middle class because of the aspiration of middle class white values. We were from the working class with middle class lifestyle with, I guess, affluent class aspirations. One of the things that is constant, though, is that I feel there's an, there's an unconscious expectation on the part of folks that are racially privileged that I'm not as capable and that I'm supposed to do something to, to prove that. And many people assume that in radical and progressive uh, environments that that's different, but we're all socialized the same. And so I hear folks saying things like, well, that surprised me. And I was really upset because at Goddard, we're supposed to do such and such. And I think to myself, really? Like the folks that are here in this space are representatives and come from, from this world where those kinds of, you know, where the social hierarchy exists. So it, is, it, is, it exists here. Giving that message to people that are coming into the environment does folks a disservice to say that it shouldn't be here because people aren't prepared. There's this privileging of whose needs and whose rights are important and worthy of attention. Everybody's such a delicate flower, but everybody doesn't get the benefit of being a delicate flower. I'm the union co-chair, and there are a lot of incidents that never even make it to grievances. And I'm gonna tell you, and I'm gonna say this, you know, statistically, the folks that don't complain or do complain and aren't able to get quick resolution are typically folks of color. There was a residency, and in that residency, there was a senior workshop. We have these workshops where our seniors do these workshops. And a young European descent woman had a faculty member who was an African-American male. The African-American male, many people would say was um, large in stature you know, tall. And during this workshop, there was some exchange. It was a polite exchange. The young woman was a lovely, smart enough woman. And during this exchange, the faculty member stood up. Now, as a union rep, that was the only fact that I got 
The only problem was that this faculty member stood up. The man stood up and the person felt threatened and, you know, so it sounds very bizarre, but I kid you not. When I asked for the articulation of what the offense was or what the issue was that made the dean of student life, the program director, and HR feel like it was worthy of a conversation by those officials. Now I have this on paper. I'm an educator, I have a terminal degree. I have years of advising. I have seen different levels of contestation, dissension, Mm -hmm. argument, you know. That was bizarre to me because in this space, there are times when folks have written things on our whiteboard, you know, crossed out black and Black Lives Matter and replaced it with all, and there was no investigation. Faculty members have said things to colleagues in public spaces using harsh tones, banging on furniture, and, and it didn't end, go that far. In protecting our own dignity and humanity, we don't start a whole bunch of stuff, yes. okay? Yes. So I've had a white faculty member say, in my face, it was mitigated by a screen. Just say very, very clearly, when you talk about race and racism on this campus, you don't know what you're talking about. I know that if I complain to an official, to a dean, he said this, there's going to be some mitigating conversation. My lived experience is going to be questioned. And it's tiresome, it's tedious. You know, as a, as a woman of color coming from a line of folks that are interested in social justice and quality education, navigating a space where whiteness is so much of an unmarked cultural category in the context of conversation about social justice, it's tiring, it's wearing, you know, because see, I have a life, you know, I get on the bus every day, I go, you know, I go out, I go outside every day, and when I'm outside every day, there's things that occur that I'm navigating. So having to navigate these specific instances, sometimes, sometimes we fold. As a union co-chair, I've seen people fold in the face of clear and pronounced oppression. Race, sex, class, and gender oppression is too tacky and common a word. But in the face of clear offenses, I've seen people just say, you know, I, t- I, can't, I can't do it today. Or bring it to the, go through the proper channels and it's not grieved or the person isn't held accountable, if you will. Whereas in other instances where somebody can get upset because he stood up and now all of a sudden I'm mediating this. And, and so this kind of um, encoding of threat and encoding of danger and the way that people are able to decode them and then take action in ways that they're not explicitly decoded. So my insistence on what do you mean by he stood up escalated the situation to a point where now I'm the troublemaker. There's this constant encoding and decoding of rights and privileges, encoding and decoding of threat and camaraderie, encoding and decoding of privileges to access to space and both ideological and material resources. We do a lot of talking here. Do a lot of talking here at Goddard. Talk about a lot of stuff. And there's so much that we don't. There's so much encoding and, and decoding, but some of us, our survival is predicated on the ability to not only decode, but to be able to talk about it. Whereas other of us have the privilege to not have to talk about it. So we're able to assume this stance of, huh, what? Oh, really? No. What do you mean? Huh? What? 
Huh. The ways in which we talk about the issues and social justice and what we need to be doing for the other and what we need to do. There's nothing here that makes us have to check ourselves. We don't have anything in our structure that requires people in this environment to locate ourselves in relation to others. People that have been historically and traditionally privileged, there's nothing in our structure that requires an acknowledgement of that. And so you have people, you know, identity is fluid, identity is overlapping, nobody's all this or all that. But some of us have the luxury of saying, because I have this identity, I'm marginalized. And when this happens, I need attention and I need support. In ways that what's really happening is that they are using white privilege. And that was Diana Waters from Goddard's Telling Our Stories project, which is co-produced by our guest today, Dr. Harukati Sharif Williams. And I think going to Leora's would be a good good one to go to next. That's what um, I chose, too, yeah. I yeah, <laughs> the spirit is moving. I've heard this word a number of times, and I've also worked with the director for the filming. So I continue to be moved by the power and clarity and beauty of my colleagues' stories. So why don't you introduce this piece? So this next story is from Leonard Ainsworth, another faculty colleague in our undergraduate program, who is an Anishinaabe person of great insight into the intersection of our relationship to ourselves and to, and to the earth. I really see this as an interaction with my own understanding of the dynamic nature of ancestry and my, my ancestors and my perception of time and how our presence on this earth as Anishinaabe people is very uh, much facilitated by our ancestors. And so there is always work to do and there's always a place for us, no matter what the condition of the external circumstances that befall our lands. There's always somewhere for us to be. There's always work for us to do. There's always ways for us to find joy and meaning and connection, even with those who are radically different than us. And we, we will always have our ways about us to exist in that space and to carry each other forward. And, you know, those who are uh, part of our lineage and heritage also have very inclusive systems that bring others in. And so that's historically been abused in a lot of ways. But for me, when I follow the trail of my teachings and my elders and my teachers and the things, my dreams and other teaching methodologies that, that that's what we would call them here right but it's our knowing it's our very ontology as Anishinaabe people and me being uh, involved with the water in a way that I don't even fully understand in English or in any other way it's like I think I'm going to do this thing that is going to help me understand the water but it leads me in a way that teaches me that in order to understand how to care for the water we have to open our hearts in this whole other way that involves educational systems and involves uh, reaching others in ways that you don't expect because how can I go to a policymaker and say, water is our relative and we must stop abusing water without knowing the language of the system that allows water to be a commodified product, right? 
I went through a lot of trials and tribulations. I didn't always do well in school. I had a lot of educational trauma, as many people do, around conforming to the expectations of white professors and educators who had an idea about how education works. For example, I remember I took a British literature course once, and I had perfect attendance. I did so well, you know, and I was set on the front, and I always raised my hand, and I had so much to say, and I did a really good job on the paper, too, and all the assignments, and I should have had an A, and at the end, the professor gave me a C, and I, I, I felt really, I was like, that has to be a mistake, so, and, mm -hmm. and he was never unkind to me. He was very, he was an older gentleman, you know, a, a scholar of British literature, very proud of his cabin and his cottage and his land and all these other things, right? I remember looking at that scene and thinking that has to be a mistake. So I approached him and he was very hostile and he said, you didn't do a good enough job with Keats. I don't, I don't think you understand Keats. And I'm like, I don't understand Keats. Okay. Sure, you know, and so we went back and forth, and I explained, you know, you are affecting my opportunities with this C, you know, and I explained, and, and I think I may have made a chart of the problems. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so, um, you know, in the end, what he said was, as a humanitarian effort, I'll offer a C plus. And that did end up affecting a lot of my opportunities. And this was after I had been in other classrooms that made me want to just walk out and never return. And I think a lot about some of the stories that my aunties tell me about my great-grandfather on my mother's side. And he just, he did not want us to assimilate. He, he was very much against his children and grandchildren assimilating and constantly told us that we are not like them. It's not to say they are not humans, but their system. And I don't know that he was necessarily an English speaker, but in our language, the way it would translate is, you know, you are Anishinaabe first. You are Anishinaabe first, and so your sovereignty comes from Gajay Manido, our creator. And nobody can influence that in any way. Your sovereignty is you, right? And so the understanding that we have as peoples all intersecting in this particular time, like in, in a space of, say, a Goddard residency, <laughs> you know, that's what I'm coming with is my understanding that, like, we are sovereign beings individually and collectively we, we come from peoples, like capital P peoples, right? Like, and on the global scale. And not everybody sees it that way. <laughs> And I was saying earlier, I tend to be kind of naive, like, yeah, like, I think we're all on the same page, and then I get hit with a comment like that, you know, or, or told that, you know, because my mother is from one nation and my father's from another nation, I'm not pure and I have a mixed ancestry, and that must be really difficult and confusing. And that's not anybody's business, and they have no idea the roots of those connections beyond the fact that my parents are married, but, you know, the histories that go into the interrelations within our historic ancestry and our governance models, which are still alive to this day, right? So a person's judgment of that being, like, having any effect on me other than, like, dismissal and irritation and frustration is, you know, I mean, that's how I feel. And then at the same time, it's sort of like, I can make a choice there. You know, do I choose to engage that person who is so stuck in their own bigotry and hatred and dismissal that they can't even see that I'm a living, breathing person who's an example of this overcoming the stereotype that they espouse? That person doesn't really need to be a part of my full dialogue if they're not able to.
What's consistent about my interaction with Goddard through the years is that I always find that when I'm involved with Goddard in some way, there's a lot of meaningful interaction, dialogue, work, alchemy that all occur in the space of being either uh, a facilitator or facilitated by some experience or circumstance. And I, was, I, I constantly, everywhere I go in the world that I identify who I am, I'm, I'm uh, sort of, I'm given opportunities to talk with people about who I am. And a lot of the times, those people come with a real sense of ignorance and misunderstanding. And being a faculty member now, what I sort of find is that I'm grateful to be in the presence of colleagues who do have an understanding of white supremacy, structural racism, structural oppression, etc. And their own experiences that are very clear to me when they occur. And it's not, it's not simply a matter of race. I think it's more broad and it's about humanity, about being able to see another person's humanity, which is very much a part of how I am always looking to see someone. I'm looking to see what their experience is and to learn from them and to learn if there's commonality in ways that we can help one another and learn from one another in a way that helps us to be joyful and have a positive experience with each other in the time that we have as humans, right? But I think a lot of the times that, that desire gets disrupted by the structures that characterize our current experience. And I think what I mean by that is that the settler colonial framework is very alive and pervasive at Goddard. And this idea of a narrative that doesn't include indigenous futurity at all, it doesn't include an indigenous present, it romanticizes an indigenous past and doesn't see indigenous people as living, breathing creatures that have a diversity among them. I have had different colleagues say things to me like, well, if, if more indigenous people would care about their heritage like you do, then maybe they wouldn't have so many problems. And um, that, that is actually something that has been said to me, right? And that illustrates to me a profound misunderstanding of the diversity that exists within indigenous people. And I've also had others approach me telling me their stories of their perceived ancestry or connection to indigenous history. And that's, that's great. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to deny people that. And at the same time, I am a direct result. My whole life is a direct result of histories of removal, genocide, um, residential schools, assimilation, assault. You know, all of those things are very much a part of my history. I hesitate to say this in an overly critical way, but I, I would like to say that the, my truth about Goddard is that like many other institutions that aspires to do a lot of great things and in some ways is highly successful with that, um, there's a, a real value, I think, to the low residency model for sure. And I think it very effectively serves people who don't want to sit in a classroom full time and listen to an old white man mm -hmm. and his opinions, right? or his stories that are by their very nature oppressing yeah. my history or my experience. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, there's a really great opportunity right now with education at large to reckon with the history of the colonial past that denies indigenous futurity in any way. And so looking forward 
to a future that does include indigenous people's survival and not their elimination and disappearance is an opportunity that I think more schools can consider. If we address those and we look to the humanity of indigenous peoples, I think we find that the future can look very different and doesn't have to be chaotic. But it does require that people own their part in that history and consider what it means to be truly inclusive and honest and to speak from a place of what we would call the truth, the actual truth. And to what extent are we putting our hearts into our work? right? Where is our heart in, in our work? And I think at Goddard, by and large, I continue to be amazed by students mm. and their work because you can clearly see their heart is invested in believing in themselves. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And that's why I choose to engage this model as opposed to another one. And that's why I choose to be on this faculty. Um, if there's a way that I can be here for students to help them facilitate that process, and in particular to open the conversation to this idea that an indigenous woman might actually be somebody that can help them. I, um, I feel honored to be able to do that. And that was Leora Gainsworth from Goddard's Telling Our Stories Project. It's such a wonderful diversity of perspectives and mm. cultural backgrounds in this project. Yes, yes. We made the effort to reach out to all black, indigenous, and other people of color, faculty and staff at the college. We're hearing today are folks from the undergraduate programs. Our intention is to collect additional stories from across the college. Again, we're a virtual campus, so it means going out to, for example, the West Coast and other places to create an hour-long documentary film of these stories to share at our different residencies and then also on campus with our neighbors in the Vermont community to campus to both experience the documentary and then also to talk about what this means and have this conversation with our neighbors. There's a tremendous responsibility that Gail and I have felt with being collaborators with these storytellers and archiving, curating, and holding these stories. I'm thinking Garriott would probably be the next person to go to. Dr. Garriott Luima is a writer, also former dean of enrollment and external affairs at Goddard and was brought back as faculty in the undergraduate programs. He is a Afro-Haitian American, uh, beautiful writer and scholar, Gary Luima. I am a writer. I've been writing stories since I was about four or five years old. Um, when I was a little kid, I used to write stories about this character called Gary the Lobster. <laughs> and Gary the Lobster lived in this uh, kingdom under the sea. He married Susie the Seahorse once. He went to war and fought a shark. Um, <laughs> in high school, I discovered journalism. I needed to study something that would get me a job. Um, my parents were both Haitian immigrants. My mom was a maid. My dad was a janitor at Neiman Marcus until he got sick. And so I studied news writing at the University of Miami had a second major in creative writing, and then went into a career in the newsroom. Um, I worked at the LA Times for a year, and then I moved back to Florida and worked at the Palm Beach Post as a municipal reporter covering the city of Boynton Beach. 
And because I was the only Haitian on staff, I also wrote Haitian American Affairs in Southern Palm Beach County. Um, and I left the news business. There was a coup in Haiti. Um, Aristide was getting ousted the second time. It happened to coincide with about the same time that I was working on getting naturalized. And my editors told me they would help me fast track my passport in order to send me to Haiti. And my mom didn't like that idea at all. Um, she said, you, you, you can't do that job. Um, and so I made a switch into higher ed marketing. I started teaching at Broward College. I was teaching college prep English. Um, I took a job at Nova Southeastern University, um, predominantly white university in Fort Lauderdale. I worked as an editor and publicist. I started writing stories again. After a couple of years, I took a job at Miami-Dade College, continued to teach at Broward College, was the editorial director at MDC, um, and then started the MFA program at Bennington College. I was working at Antioch College in Yellow Springs. I was the chief communications officer. I handled uh, all brand management, web communications, management of the website, and executive communications. Um, and we also did recruitment marketing out of our office. And at the same time, I was working in a writing institute at Antioch College, which I founded. And I was teaching expository writing and college prep writing skills. I had a president who thought that my going to grad school, working on a, a PhD and teaching writing was a distraction from the executive communications and the brand management. And he wanted me to spend more time doing fundraising communications, which was not my job. And so I saw a posting at Goddard for a director of admissions. I applied, uh, spoke to then President Barbara Vacar on the phone, was flown out for an interview on campus, a full day of interviews. Um, and was offered the job and told my boss I was leaving and coming to Goddard. And when I came up to Goddard College, it was much more rural than was Bennington. And while I was pleasantly surprised to see black people on campus, because I didn't know that the faculty council was going to be on campus at the time, during the community meeting, a white member of faculty looked at me and said, you're obviously a person of color and Vermont is one of the whitest states in the union, if not the whitest, how are you going to deal with that? It was a bit of a surprising question. This person said that he was raising a son in the state of Vermont, so he thought about these things. And for at the time, I thought, he must have a child of color. <laughs> this is why he's asking this question. And I reminded him that I'm, I'm always presenting as a black person, regardless of where I work, and I've worked primarily at predominantly white institutions, and I'm very much familiar with what it is to be one of a few of us in the room. And so another question moved up, and, and I remember talking to my sister about this after, and I said, I went to this interview. It was pretty cool. The faculty asked questions about my research interests and what I was doing in, in the PhD, which isn't a question you get generally when you're interviewing for an administrative job. And my sister said, but they wanted to remind you that you were black in the interview. Mm. And I said, that person thought it was important because maybe he thought I would forget sometimes. And I think about it periodically when I interact with that person. I think when I started at Goddard, I think I was the only black person coming to work on campus every day. There was one other person of color in the financial aid office. And I would communicate with people of color in email or in Google Hangout, but I would come to a campus where I was the only brown face until I hired another person of color in the admissions department. 
and I think about the four years of working at Goddard. I mean, there are many interestingly tough things about working at Goddard as an administrator, but I think it's a kind of isolating experience to be a black person on this campus in the state. One of the many committees that I sat on when an administrator here was a faculty diversity, um, I can't remember the full name of the committee, it was like faculty diversity worker. And it was a, a, a committee of um, administrators, faculty members, program directors, and we were sorting through this question of faculty diversity. What we, one, we wanted to get a sort of baseline understanding of the makeup of our faculty. And then as we began to ask questions in committee, we thought we needed to um, get a, a makeup of the faculty in terms of diversity, gender, gender expression, um, sexual orientation, and relationship to the college. So full-time or half-time or paid by task. Um, and then we tried to take a look at tenure of faculty whether or not there was any correlation between length of service and race. And we didn't get 100% response rates on this survey. I think we got something like 60% of faculty respondents in um, one program, only one or two faculty members responded. And we also began to ask questions about how people experience the institution. And we found, not really surprising, that while there might be pockets of diversity in the faculty, um, there was, at the time, I believe, one faculty member with full-time status who was a faculty of color. Part of living in this country and in this world is uh, you give of yourself in some ways for the things that you need. And so I do that. I, I am able to cover my student loans, uh, help my mom with, with the bills, and I like shoes um, <laughs> so, and, and, and buy shoes every so often. I, I guess I don't know another way. Like, perhaps there's another way. Um, but the necessity of work and working in spaces dominated by white people has been sort of the reality of my life. Um, it's It's been where I was educated. Um, I went to elementary school, middle school, high school around white people, went to undergrad at a predominantly white institution, you know, did my graduate work at predominantly white institutions, um, and I've always had to negotiate relationships with white people for the sake of my work. Perhaps there's a way not to have to do that. Perhaps there's a way for a person to live fully, authentically themselves without reservation. Um, but I... I can admit I don't know the road there just yet, and so I, I continue to do my job as an administrator. I, I try to work at places where at least I have some I have some positive feelings about the mission of the place, um, where I feel as if I can make some difference. And I haven't gone fully corporate, <laughs> so I still work in <laughs> under-resourced small liberal arts colleges that I care about. And so I, I guess that, that's been the, the balance for me. And that was Garriott Luima from Goddard's Telling Our Stories project. The brilliance of these individuals, I think, really, really comes through in so many ways. And if people who are listening have also connected with that brilliance, I invite them to really consider how that brilliance is diminished and undermined by the racial violence and the racialized structural violence that these individuals experience 
on a day-to-day basis in the society and in the workplace and at Goddard, that there's such a tremendous cost to being Black, Indigenous, and a person of color in the society and in organizations like Goddard, that it is enormously exhausting to attempt to do one's work, to put one's brilliance in service of the organizational mission while experiencing the white supremacy that exists. And that remains invisible to most other people from the outside. Yeah. So we have one more piece. Why don't you go ahead and introduce Emerson? Right. So Dr. Emerson Whitney is a author, writer, actually coming out with a new book this coming year, is a member of the undergraduate programs faculty and does amazing work with students in our BFA in creative writing as well as in a number of our other degree tracks. Emerson Whitney. I ended up at Goddard in 2008 after being at six other colleges. I had a rocky road in my adventuring into higher education. I grew up in a pretty tumultuous environment. I struggled to find somewhere that would support my um, difficulty with being upright for many hours, but also was a place where I felt academically contained as well as given the capacity to go beyond what I thought was possible for myself academically. But it was definitely because of how uh, difficult my road was that I ended up at Goddard. Goddard was like the only place that would take all of my credits, like a wild like tumbleweed of credits. I dropped out, I flunked out, and then I made it here. <laughs> and I stayed. This is where I graduated, which is great. So when I first got to Goddard as a student, um, I was in a really different place in, on this inquiry. It's interesting now, I'm really still close with my cohort, and a lot of us have had the same kind of shift into looking at our ethnicities or identities in a, in a deeper way. At that time, we were really focused on gender. I'm like noticing in myself telling this story how much doubt I have about its validity. I, I do feel like I'm like, oh man, if my grandma ever saw this, she would kill me. You know what I mean? Like I'm having those thoughts right now. And those are things I wasn't able to access. So my grandma is Roma, um, is Romani, and um, I was mostly raised with her, or at least she was my home base emotionally as a family support human being and um, I'm really close with her still and I just love her so much and I for some reason grew up thinking she was Hawaiian like for the most part like when I was little I thought she was Hawaiian I knew she liked Hawaii and I just associated for some reason like her her skin color with like that of a native Hawaiian I was I don't know you know now it seems really like obviously culturally insensitive but I was like eight so or younger I didn't know any better but I always knew that there was something up with our skin color difference and what was going on there. And, um, you know, when she would pick me up from school or something, there would be like comments like, is she the, you know, where's, where's your mom or whatever? And is she the maid or, you know, I was with her at one point and this does happen still where like, you know, if she's in the yard doing something, if someone comes up to like even drop off the mail or whatever, they'll be like, oh, when is the person who lives here going to be home, you know? Um, and she'll be like, get the F off my lawn, you know. But I definitely was raised with that cultural consciousness and my mom questioned her ethnicity a lot of my childhood too. So that questioning became part of my makeup and I started really exploring what that was. But um, she's still really closed off to this conversation. If I bring it up to her, she changes the subject and she straight up will not talk to me about this really. 
But she'll use the pejorative. Like, she'll be like, we're gypsies or whatever. Or she'll... I mean, I think she's been kind of... I, I don't know. I don't know if she's just really not... She just really doesn't want to talk about it. Which I understand, of course. And, um, yeah. So, it's been confusing. Actually, Ohio has the highest, like, amount of Romani people from Hungary in the world. So, like, and she's originally... They're Hungarian Roma people. But it does make me absolutely question myself, and I think I've... I just think it's... I mean, it's in a way, it's a gift because I get to use my access as a way to have these conversations, especially with white people who, um, you know, I'm privy to a lot of conversations that are... that they're imagining that there is no one in the room that would feel as if they have stake in, you know? So I end up getting a lot of opportunities to address race and racism from the inside of whiteness. I was, I was involved in a lot of trans activism on campus, and so that was really our primary focus, but we felt very alienated and separate. We felt fought against, we felt hyper-visible. I, I tend to bridge communities inadvertently, maybe because I try to get everyone to like me, I don't know. So I was often in the middle, and it just was really uncomfortable. It was kind of a mess a lot of those years. And there were so many structures that weren't in place to support us. I mean, like, I have endless stories about the transphobia and the just complete ignorance. And it does feel, too, like when I got here as faculty, I was prepared for that level that I had anticipated and experienced as part of the program that I was a student in. But when I came to teach in the program where I was really shocked by the by the racial makeup, which was almost entirely white at the time, not to negate the few folks of color, students of color that were part of that program at the time. It just was predominantly white in a way that just seemed like a striking contrast to the rest of the campus, even in its lack, you know, it was still a striking contrast. And is emblematic, I think, of the elitism of creative writing as a whole across the country, but is a problem. I think part of the way academia, academia functions is by like grabbing tokens, essentially. So like often in a department, there is one of somebody. I guess in certain departments, there is a, there is a collection of people. But in my field in creative writing, there's usually like a collection of tokens, I guess, for lack of a better term. And I'm certainly the only trans faculty member here. And then like, you know, I'm, I'm at this moment also representing like Romani people in a way, and so like there's never anyone else. And I know that most of the faculty here occupy a similar position where they're just the only one of whatever group that they're, that they're coming from. And it's a lot of pressure. And it definitely feels difficult to answer questions as if I can speak for an entire group of people. So yeah, that is hard. But I don't know if there's a solution to that at all at this moment. The first book that's like almost there, that is an autobiographical experiment that I worked on for the last three years that's about my relationship to womanness, but also the complicated nature of three major relationships to women that I've had in my life. Wrestling with like abuse and using BDSM as a way toward healing in that avenue. So like kink. The next project was mostly my dissertation, but is also about chronic pain, but it uses theories from Emmanuel Levinas and Fred Moen and Glissant as ways to interrogate alterity. In the last project, I'm going to go in a van with 10 other people, it sounds like, for two weeks across the country at the end of May looking for tornadoes, which I thought would be interesting for a bunch of reasons, but it's, it's a, basically a tour of the red states. 
I'm really fascinated by this idea of who would go on a tour to try to look for extreme weather. Like, I'm, I'm fascinated by who these people are because this is a tour open to the public. But also, like, I'm really interested in this idea of freak of nature always. I've been studying, like, freakdom for a long time. A tornadic event, I would say, is probably considered, like, a freak of nature type of event that people are wanting, like, to pay to go see. And what it means to be someone who embodies what is often considered a freak, a freak of nature. When my body is in the tour, I'm curious what happens to that tour and to me. So that's what I'm doing. I'm aware that I have light skin privilege and I'm like, you know, racialized as white. And so I do think that part of the mechanism for which I have had the capacity to come up has been a result of that. When I was like a freshman or sophomore in high school, I had child protective services called on my mom. I wasn't put into foster care. Like a person in my exact same situation who would have been racialized as black or as brown likely would have been. It got weirder actually, but they were protecting my mother who is for the most part also racialized as white or definitely is, at that time was racialized as white. I was given an opportunity to like wait for an extended family member to come pick me up or whatever rather than having to go into a system. I don't know, it's hard to parse. Um, but in that same way, I kept getting opportunities. And I think a lot of it is due to my race and the access of that, because I really should have probably not made it this far in a lot of ways. I, 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 I definitely punted a lot of opportunities that I was given and kept getting more. I question how much of that is me. The cultural position I occupy, students now are coming to this place to work with me or want to, and I don't know if we are in a position to support those students, particularly the trans students of color. Absolutely, we're not in a position to support those students in the way that I think we need to be. I don't feel as if we're in a position where we support faculty of color, and I don't think we're in a position where we support administrators of color at all. I'm not even mentioning those with intersecting identities along with um, being racialized as a person of color. So that's my concern. And I feel like if we can't support the faculty and we can't support administration that reflects the kind of student body we want to have, how could we possibly support the student? That was Emerson Whitney from Goddard's Telling Our Stories Project, co-produced by our guest, Dr. Harukati Sharif Williams. Again, I'm just struck by how illuminating these stories are and how informing they are for someone like me, especially now that I've been living up here in Vermont, one of the whitest places in the world. Yes, and one of the reasons why Emerson's story is so important to the overall project is because his story disrupts and challenges notions of whiteness and what white is. And so we definitely wanted him to participate and, and really had to work, you know, his own critical race analysis and his own ethics was about, okay, well, this is supposed to be, you know, black indigenous people of color story. I don't want to position myself in this way like a racial Delazal or something like that. Are you sure? And I was like, your story as a Roma person, of Roma ancestry disrupts and, and challenges this notion of what the European is and what white is. And so there's a lot of learning in the complexity and the beauty within each of these stories and across the stories. Yes. And again, I want to thank you so much for doing this project. The two of you with Dr. Gail Jackson created a, a beautiful space for people to tell their stories. Yes, it's been a powerful, powerful project and one that we want to have an impact 
on not just on the college community, but on the the wider community. Yes. So again, thank you so much for being on the show, Dr. Harukadi Sharif Williams. Thank you, Tonio.